Now that's a reading, isn't it? That's a reading. Whew. I started writing the sermon with words I've never written at the top of a sermon before. Word of warning, I titled it. Uh, I don't normally start with a word of warning, but it's not a sermon that I naturally want to preach. But it is a sermon and a subject that I believe we do need to address if we're going to take Romans seriously. In fact, if we're going to take God and understand the gospel fully. There are some uncomfortable truths this morning. It's titled, What's Wrong with the World? Some Uncomfortable Truths. And in fact, there's going to be one truth, perhaps more uncomfortable than any other, which I want to finish with. So you can look forward to that. (laughs) Oh, Matt, where are we going? It's going to be okay. If your desire is to follow Jesus, to hear from God, to know the fullness of his wonder and his grace, then come and let's sit under the word of God together this morning. Let's listen and let's listen deep. Let's let the Lord speak. Just going to pray, invite the Holy Spirit to come. Father, you know this week I have tossed and turned with this entire subject. But I'm thankful to you for your word. And I'm thankful that you will speak to us truth this morning. Speak through my words and despite my words, I pray. Come Holy Spirit and convict, challenge and comfort us in equal measure, I pray. Come and reveal Jesus to us. In his name I ask. Amen. Amen. All right. Good stuff. Exciting, isn't it? Here we go. So, we're on an adventure. Um, Let me see if this will... uh, Oh, why is that not working? Uh, We need to make the right screen active, David. It'll be... Uh, it's not clicked on, so just click on where the, where the, the right-hand screen, literally with the mouse, click on it, and then it gives me control. Wait for it. Yeah, no, that's... Wait for it. I'll get there. Uh, I assume this may be dead. That's fine. If, if we're able to switch those, that would be marvellous. Someone come and you know, run that back. Thanks, Mark. Um, if we could just go to the next slide, that would be marvellous. Thank you. So we're on an adventure through Romans, and we're doing it in our life groups, and we're doing it on Sunday mornings, and it is without doubt an extraordinary book with life-changing significance. It's been more influential as a single book, part of scripture, possibly than any other in how we are as church today, and understanding Jesus and the gospel. Um, Written originally, as Mark was telling us last week, to just small house churches in this extraordinary, powerful city in the ancient world of Rome. They didn't have Christianity all sorted out. It wasn't, oh, do you go to church? It was like this gathering. We're hearing about Jesus. We're trying to work out what this is all about. And Paul writes this magnificent letter, extraordinary letter to them, um, to help them understand. And they are surrounded in the city by unspeakable riches and power, military might, magnificent architecture, the Roman Empire at the height of its glory, conquering, majestic, seemingly unpowerful and unstoppable with the most majestic leader, Caesar, at the head of it all. The one who people considered as Lord and almost as God. 
And into this context, Paul dares to drop a letter that says, no matter what you see around you, friends, there is a far more powerful king than him. You may think, and some may think, it's embarrassing pinning our hopes on a story of a carpenter from Galilee. But I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is glorious. Romans drops in. We're going to climb this mountain of Romans together, setting off to explore its heights, enjoying the life-changing views, come back down with a renewed confidence in the gospel, a new love for Jesus, a renewed passion for mission. I genuinely am excited. I think it's going to be exhilarating. But before we can take one step climbing up, before we can stand on the heights of the gospel, Paul insists that we first go down into the valley of sin. He explains the depths and darkness of sin and makes it clear that each one of us is found guilty. That's where our reading ended today. And at this point, if you're anything like me, you begin to squirm a little. We don't like to talk about sin much in church these days. We don't like the idea of a stern preacher pointing his finger at a bored congregation and yelling, sinners! We don't like the idea of people being left feeling rubbish and judged and downtrodden. Shame on the church if that's where we leave you feeling today. Shame on me. The notion of sin, though, it just doesn't seem to fit well in our modern world. It grates against our contemporary sensitivities. Our desire to speak of good news is natural in a world that we can see and we heard again, thank you Ralph for your prayers, is already hurting. It's got to the point though where we almost fear mentioning the world. We kind of use you, uh, the word, we kind of use euphemisms a bit like we do about, we don't mention toilet in polite company, do we? We spend a penny or visit the washroom. We don't say sin, we just say, you know, some understandable, unintended faux pas, you know? If we can find some other way of saying it. But these chapters in Romans won't let us do it. Paul insists that we look square at it. Let's call a spade a spade. Sin is sin. And in his book uh, that's based on this series, and a few people are already reading it, alongside life groups, alongside the sermons, I commend it to you, Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life by uh, author, connected to the Bible Society called Andrew Ollerton, the chap who spoke, as Mark said, at the B1 service we had recently. He explains that when he went to choose a diamond ring for his wife, the chap, the jeweller, before he showed him the ring, took out a black velvet cloth and put it on the counter and then put the ring on it. The idea being that against the darkness, the diamond would shine even brighter. And that's exactly what Paul does in these first few chapters. Friends, it may be uncomfortable, but before we can truly see the glorious, extraordinary good news of the gospel shining in all its glory, we need to understand the very real darkness of sin. Before we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and victory, we must first ask, but why did he have to die? He's alive, he's conquered, he's risen, but why did he have to go through that? To discover this, we must descend together into the valley. You can see the little drawing there last week, the gospel, the path ahead, and down we go into the valley of sin. As we do, 
I want to start by addressing head-on two truths that we often find uncomfortable. Sin and wrath. Oh, Matt, this is a good one. Yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) Here we go. Uh, That's still not working. So, Oh, yes, it is. Marvellous. Oh, wait, there we go. Brilliant. Look at that. Thank you, folks. The truth about sin. The truth is, friends, that whilst we might like to ignore it, sin is potent. Far more potent than we realise. Thursday night, could have been, no, Friday night, I picked up the kids from school. And I just said, and they all got in the car grumping, and I was like, oh, get out again, go on, off you go. I literally sent them out, outside, come back in again, please. I felt like an old uh, disciplinarian. That's not how you come in my vehicle. Um, but they were all right, the watch not really yeah, they're just grumping over who sits where. I love them to bits, and I was like, right, come on, let's do something positive. Let's go get some treats from Lidl's. Yeah, that's the answer, isn't it? So we went to Lidl's and chose our cookies and treats and whatever it was, and drinks. And I didn't really fancy anything until I saw a tiny, tiny can of, called a ginger shot with turmeric. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, ooh, that sounds exciting. And they're like, what are you getting down of this thing, whatever this thing is? And I got it, and we were in the van and we started to drink, and I took the first sip. I kid you not, foul in every single description. I, I would call it worse if I could. It was horrendous. The most bitter, unpleasant, rank, sharp. It was awful in every way. Yeah, but it was good for me. Is that right? Thanks. This was not good for me. My stomach told me later, this is not good for me, just so you know. This stuff was awful. And I laughed. And the kids were like, what's the matter? And I'm like, that is one of the worst things I've ever tasted. And, and they were like, oh, we'll have a go. We're like, yeah, you will. You'll have a go. You must do it. Well, I don't know. Go on, go on, go for it. And hearing them cough and choke and splutter made me laugh and made us all laugh. It was a great time we had. When I got the can at the beginning, I thought, well, this is a bit mean, isn't it? Not very generous. By the time I'd drunk half of it, I was like, this can is huge. It is disgusting. And I could barely finish it. It was far more potent than I realised. We can easily struggle to understand the potency of sin. See, Jesus didn't come to die for one or two understandable little faux pas by someone else somewhere in a corner. He came to rescue an entire world and its people, utterly sick from a disease that has impacted everything and everyone. Even nature itself is groaning under sin, Scripture says. Like when the wicked reign of the Snow Queen came to Narnia, and this is why I put this picture up. If you've seen the films or read the, the, the books, it wasn't just a little bit of Narnia that was affected by her reign. Freezing ice took hold of every single leaf and branch and hill and plain. There was nowhere that wasn't tainted by it. Sin is serious. It is real. It is more potent, more dreadful than we often realise. It has changed and corrupted everything. Over 39 times in the Old and New Testament, the Bible speaks of sin as a corruption that spreads like yeast through a dough, affecting every part. Impossible to remove the yeast that spread through the dough once it's in. In Romans 6, Paul speaks of sin like a slave master, a force that is controlling and dominating. He's warning against it. 
having dominion over the world and over individuals. In Colossians, he speaks of the influence of sin as being like a dominion of darkness, a dominion of lies, of hatred, of abuse, of injustice, of selfishness, of sexual immorality, of impurity, of passion, evil desire, covetousness. But it's not always that obvious either. Genesis 3, we can see that sin sometimes seems enticing, might even seem good. Take the fruit, the serpent says, you will surely not die, you will gain knowledge. That's a good thing, isn't it? Wisdom, be like God. That is a good thing. We want that. We take fruit. Sin is, in Proverbs 9, personified as lady folly, calling out to passers-by. Stolen water is sweet. Come on in. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Food, water, sweet, delicious. Then we read the most chilling sentence after that. I think one of the most chilling in the whole of scripture. It says, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. You see, sin is a curse, it's a trap, a corruption, a deception, a lie. Yet it's enticing and it's rampant in our lives and in our world. It's a very real enemy. Genesis 4, 7 says it's like a tiger hidden, waiting at the door, ready to pounce. It desires you. The scriptures say... Genesis 4, it desires you. The warning is so clear. It's like a thief that comes to kill and steal and destroy, to feed you false truths, to capture your heart. The Bible tells us again and again and again, despite our protestations, that however small or subtle it may seem to be, that sin always leads to death. Sin is potent. cannot be ignored or wished away. One look around our violent, unstable, unjust, unhappy and chaotic world also tells us this is true. Truth about God's wrath. Let's turn to this other uncomfortable word and truth. We heard in our passage, chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Friends, this letter pulls no punches about the state of the world, the state of humanity, how God feels about it. It tells us that the wrath of God stands firmly and squarely against sin. And you can almost hear that, eek, Matt, steady, steady. You can't mention this. It's not nice. We don't like to hear it. The notion of an angry God is not comfortable to us. Well, let's deal with it together for a moment, shall we? I want to start by saying something that you simply must understand and that we've sung about this morning. God so loves the world. He gave the very, very best thing he had, his only son, Jesus, to come and rescue it from sin. Don't ever forget that. Our God could not be more loving more faithful, more gracious, more wonderful. I simply could not exaggerate to you this morning how deeply, 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 deeply loved you are. Every single person in here. More deeply loved than you could ever imagine by the God who made you. Not only is the sort of God who might give up everything to reach out to you, he is the God who did give up everything to reach out to you to save you from this curse of sin. He actually did it. God is not just loving, he is love beyond measure. I love 
the old uh, hymn, Love of God is Greater Far, than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill, I love this, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Come on. Come on. Isn't that extraordinary? It's like the best we could do to possibly describe the love of God would be wholly inadequate. He is utterly, unquestionably loving. And he utterly, unquestionably loves you and this world beyond our comprehension. So surely we can scrap this idea of wrath, right? No. We can't. His burning wrath is part of his burning love for us. He sees the damage of sin. He sees its utter domination, corruption and pain. He sees lies and selfish ambition, arrogance and indifference causing suffering, trauma, abuse, torture, death. He sees his creation mercilessly treated in a desire for endless resources and pleasure. He sees the poor, the downtrodden, the vulnerable, trampled on and deprived of food and safety and rest. As others enjoy luxury beyond comprehension, he sees his good purposes trampled on, his perfect will ignored. He sees dreams and possibilities of millions of people crushed by sin. And he stands against it with the full force of his wrath because he stands for his creation with the full force of his love. I have a vivid memory as a child of walking with my dad when I was a little boy We were walking along a pavement, I can see it now, and we crossed over a bit where the pavement dipped and there was like a a, a, a set of flats and you had to walk across this entrance to the set of flats which went round the corner. And as we were walking, I don't know how or what happened, but I remember this car came speeding out of the flat and nearly took me off my feet. And my dad just so happened to have hold of my hand at that point and he hurled me up and pulled me towards himself. And then he did something I'd never seen him do before. He shouted angrily at the driver and he berated him. How dare you? Slow down. You nearly took out my son. And I stood there shell-shocked. Not just because of the close encounter, not just because I'd been dragged away, but because I'd never seen my dad act like that. It's normally a peacemaker, normally a gentleman. But in that moment, I knew I was so loved. You try and get me, my dad. He's going to roar like a lion. He's not having it. Friends, I want a God who cares. I need a God who cares. Who, when he sees the wanton destruction and injustice and suffering caused in this world by unbridled sin, doesn't just sit back and go, but he's furious. Look what is going on. When he sees the thief running amok, killing and stealing and destroying, he roars with anger. I don't want an indifferent God who sees suffering at the hands of the enemy and says, oh, don't worry about it. I'm a God of love, none of it matters. Yes, it does matter, precisely because he does love. Delete God's wrath and you end up with an insipid, aloof and uncaring deity. Instead, we do have a God who will pick up a sword and 
You see, God's wrath is not uncontrolled emotional rage, but a steadfast and absolute opposition to all that is evil. It is essential to the character of God because God is love. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing is that in his grace, this holy God so often chooses to hold back his wrath. He's the God who is slow to anger, he says. He's the God who, if the worst of sinners would just come to him in true repentance, he would embrace them right there in his love. I will stand against you and what you are doing, but if you turn to me, I will embrace you. I will save you, because I love you. God's wrath is the other side of his incomprehensible love for us. So, we've heard the uncomfortable truth about sin, and perhaps the less uncomfortable than we realise truth about the wrath of God that stands so squarely against it in every form. And now we're able with Paul to begin to answer the question we asked at the beginning, well, what's wrong with the world? The simple answer I believe Paul gives to the Christians gathered in Rome. This is one perspective, one part of the whole of Scripture. We read Scripture, alongside Scripture we want the full counsel of God's word. But here let it speak clearly, like a bell, like a whistle, that we can all hear. Paul says that although God has shown the truth of himself to the world he so loves, people have chosen to suppress and reject this truth and instead to seek their own wicked desires. He has given humanity the wonder of the world, its order and beauty, the heavens above, the generosity of food and taste and abundance of wildlife. He has given us the ability to reason and to love, to create and to care, to sacrifice ourselves even for others. He has given us a conscience that calls out to us what is good. He has made us bearers of his image in a world that speaks of his glory and yet we have rejected him. Because of this, Romans says, no one has an excuse. Speaking of the pagan world all around them, Paul says to the church in Rome, for though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. In fact, verse 25, he says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. When I first read through these chapters again a week or two ago, that was the moment where I went, I've never really let that one sink in as a definition of sin. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Sin is saying and doing and causing stuff that is hurtful, bad and wrong. But at its heart, sin is actually exchanging the truth about God for a big, fat, ugly, horrible lie. Sin is exchanging the loving lordship and direction of our creator for the right to choose myself how I want to live. He is so for us, so for you, your flourishing and your future. And yet we turn to him and say, I don't need any advice, thank you. I don't need someone telling me what to do. I know what's best for myself, my family. I will choose. It's my way, not yours, God, or anyone else's for that matter. I will eat the fruit. Thank you very much. And it can seem like it will lead to happiness, but it actually leads to sorrow. It can seem like true freedom, but it is a bondage. It can seem like truth, but it is a lie. 
Paul tells us in Romans that because we so adamantly choose this way, God's response? Well, he has given us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. Like the prodigal son's father, when the son came and said, I want my money now, Dad, I want to go and spend it on prostitution and parties. And the father went, okay, have your way, have your desires. And he let him go. He was handed over to his own desires and its consequences. We have freedom to let our desires have free reign. But see where it gets us. Paul points to the corruption of Roman society as one example of where it gets us. Society where brutal control, power and pride reigned. I never really realised until I watched recently a, uh, a BBC documentary about the making of uh, Julius Caesar, the making of a tyrant. It's a fantastic three-part documentary. I think it's still on BBC iPlayer. I didn't realise their worldview was so different that the crushing of someone weaker than you, to take pleasure in that moment of pressing their head in the ground with your foot, gives you glory and honour and satisfaction. You may think no one could take joy in that. They could. That was what it was to be strong, to be a leader, to be a Roman. And Paul points to a society where brutal control and power and pride reigned, where hedonism and gluttony were supreme, where sex had been corrupted from the God-given gift that it is. There's something beautiful, a gift for husband and wife lovingly covenanted together for life. Instead, this was a society that tore up all the rules where sexual perversions were not just tolerated, but celebrated, rife with orgies and brothels, where a Roman man could sleep with any woman, any man, even a child at their will, as long as it was a demonstration of strength and domination and did not dishonour another Roman man. It wasn't just sex that was the issue. They had become filled with every kind of wickedness, Paul says, and he lists them off, evil, greed and depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to do them, but they approve of them. This is what happens when we give priority above all else, to our own desires. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we might think, well, that was back then, Matt. We're much more civilised today. (laughs) I didn't expect that to get a chuckle. (laughs) But are we? As we look around the world today, I also see unbridled desire dominating above all else. I see land taken by force. Families raped and murdered, houses bombed, people groups being wiped out because someone has decided they want what they have. Or the right to consider those people as expendable in their own plans for power and control. We see runaway greed and short-term decision-making based on instant gratification and votes. We see chaos in politics, instability across the world, desperate poverty due to disease and war and preventable illnesses. We see antibiotics abused by the huge profits of beef burgers, rampant consumption of the world's resources, we can see that sin is potent, friends. It has run rife, it has affected every branch and tree, every valley and every vale. 
What about us personally? What about our society here in the UK? And lots of that also is us. But I wonder, what does define our society at the moment, perhaps more than anything else? Could it be that it is our own desires above all else? My right to do what I like. My right to choose what I want and how I should live. There is no longer any defined sense of right or wrong. Or at least it's being eroded. Just my choices that really must be accepted and approved of. And so we see unbridled hyper-masculinity that subjugates women and treats them like objects. It's exploded in popularity among young men. We see the unquestioned right to have sex in whatever way and whenever I want with no consequences. We see that pornography is no longer even just a hidden vice. It is celebrated as something normal and healthy. We see a generation of children that are struggling without boundaries, bouncing from one to another in the chaos of it all. We see self-promotion as the currency of unlimited social media. We see personal desire and feelings that are considered far more important than any covenant promises or self-sacrifice for someone else. And I want to be careful here. Because you might put me in a box, politically, or think, oh yes, some good old Victorian preacher, go for it, Matt. Actually, I'm not that staid old Victorian preacher. I don't want to make Britain Christian again, because actually, I don't believe we ever really were. I think that's a myth. I'm a creative, I'm an optimist, I love life, I believe there's so much wonder and beauty in this world. I could have done a whole sermon on the wonder and beauty of humanity. Really, I could have. So much art and poetry and science and story and food and traditions that are just incredible. A world so full of clever and wonderful creative people who are loving and caring, who blow my mind at their generosity and the way they live sometimes. So many cultures that bring tremendous diversity and beauty to the table that should be celebrated. I also believe we should be a tolerant and kind and accepting society. with The freedom to worship as we feel called. I'm glad we are where those are different to us are not threatened or hurt or discriminated against, where difference is cherished, not quashed, where the blaming of outcasts for our problems is challenged for the lie that it is. After all, as Christians, I want us to be more like Jesus, the one who radically welcomed the most unlikely of misfits, who loved the unloved, who cared for the broken, who reached out to the struggling, even though he recognised the sin in it all. What I am saying, though, is that perhaps in our new wisdom, in our dominant thinking at the moment, in our desire to live a good life, we've prioritised and celebrated the personal right to choose, to self-choose above all else. We've pretty much said everything is okay and to be celebrated as long as I'm okay with it. We've elevated the question, what do you think is right for you, as the most important question of all, and I just want to put a question mark next to that thinking. I fear we've actually actually exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've been caught in a trap and it's hurting us more than we realise because the truth is we often don't know what we really want. And sometimes what we think we really want isn't actually what we really need. Are we really happier as a society now? Or are we struggling with unhappiness, mental health, exhaustion, feeling of lostness and loneliness more than ever before? What mess have our unrestrained desires led our society into? What has God given us over to? If Paul was to answer what is wrong with the world today, 
based on this passage, I think he might well answer quite simply, sin, folks. In our so-called wisdom, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've been given over to our own desires. And we are suffering so much because of it. Sin is potent. It's an utter devastation. And I'm coming into land. But if any of us are sat here going, yeah, that's right, man. Preach it to them. Let them know. Sinners, yeah, not like me. Then you're in for another unpleasant truth. Truth about us. Because Paul won't allow even the slightest hint of any superiority or judgment. Did you notice? Chapter 2, he fires back, saying, you somehow think your religion or birthright means you can pass judgment. You're condemning yourself because every single person is caught in the selfish trap of sin. If we're pointing the finger of judgment, we need to wake up. We're just as guilty as everybody else and anybody else. Every one of us has disobeyed the beautiful call of God through our words, actions, desire, declared that I am Lord of my life. We've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Paul thunders his declaration in Romans 3 that therefore every mouth will be silenced. The whole world held accountable to God. There won't be any, ah, yeah, but. All have sinned fall short of the glory of God. Sin has run rampant in the world. It has run rampant in our lives. We're all guilty. The truth is we need to hear it and I need to hear it. I actually need that refreshing level of honesty sometimes. In this moment, I don't want someone to say, but Matt, you're a nice guy. I hope I am. But I simply actually want a clear diagnosis, however unpleasant it is, of what's the problem so that the treatment can start. We're so often tempted to play the victim, to wriggle out, or to choose the gentle way out, or to be given it. But the first three chapters of Romans won't let us. It declares that the problem of the world and the problem of our lives is sin and there is no difference between any of us. Every single one of us has fallen utterly short of the glory of God. The outcome of it all is that it leads to death. We are left realizing that we are part of the problem, deserving of judgment with no way of getting ourselves out at all. And that is where our scripture reading ended. You may think that that was the most uncomfortable truth that I warned you about at the beginning. But no, there is one more. Why, thank you, Matt. We just need another. Just hear me for a moment, because this is an uncomfortable one that I know we all need to hear. And I finish with it. And it's this. That despite the mess we're in, despite the destruction, greed, pollution, and rebellion in all of us, The glorious God of all creation has done something about this problem. He left his glory and he came. And he lived a sin-free life. What did we do? This is where it gets uncomfortable. We abused him. We spat at him. We beat him. We mocked him. We want nothing to do with you, God. We've chosen our way. It's our desires, not yours. And we brutally killed him. And this is uncomfortable. That he knew we'd do just that. And he still came. And he still did it. Friends, Jesus' death was real. It was more terrible than we could ever imagine. But as he hung there suffering, he was actually taking the full 
weight and power and devastation and deserved punishment of every single bit of our sin on himself. The full wrath of God against sin was in that moment turned to his own beloved son. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And it's because he loves us so, 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 so much. What did we do? We laughed and we jeered at his patheticness. We looked at him through our eyes and went, what a loser. And yet he simply said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we realized this afresh. We should not feel comfortable. We should be left like the hymn writer asking, can it really be? Can it really be that he really loves me beyond measure? That he really gave everything for me? That he cared so much he paid for my sin? For it all? For this world's sin? For it all? The answer is yes. Friend, we are sinners. We are loved beyond measure. Friend, in Jesus there is a forgiveness and a way out of the trap. Friend, against the darkness, the diamond shines so brightly. Praise Jesus. Can I invite the band back up? I'm going to come into land. Bless you. <laughs> I want to invite you to take a moment, and I'm going to do this too. I want you to repent this morning. Be honest with yourself and with God. Say you're sorry and that without him you can't do it, and tell him that you don't want to do it anymore without him again. Or maybe for the first time, you never realized or heard before just how great the problem was, but you've heard this morning, and you've heard the way out. It is Jesus. It's always been and will only be Jesus. The extraordinary gospel is that through faith alone, that moment where you say, yes, Jesus, your way, not mine. I trust you and I love you and I thank you. This act of graceful acceptance and surrender, in that moment we are forgiven and set free and we are declared sinless in God's eyes. The extraordinary thing is that this is for anyone who believes in Jesus, who surrenders to him. Sin is potent. And the gospel is far more formidably potent still. Take a moment just as we sit. We'll probably stand about halfway through, but just take a moment of you and God. and Just get right with him again this morning. If it's the first time of getting right with him, take it. Take it. Just say, Jesus, I want to right with you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you you died for my sin. Give my life to you. Be my Lord, my Saviour. Forgive me and lead me on. He will do that this morning. Let's pray in this moment as we sing. Majesty.